Welcome to the Super Nintendo Exploration Squad podcast, episode 6, a selectbutton.net guided podcast. Our team of brave explorers plays one game selected kind of at random from the Super Nintendo library, and then we discuss it using the five standardized metrics that everybody knows about for scoring a video game. Those five metrics are gun, vanity, mystery, poetry, and harmony. Uh, joining me today are... It's me, the Internet Shrug. Your co-host, Courier Rice. I'm one second before. I am Talpa. And I'm your host, Virtual Clint. Uh, this week we're playing Cyber Knight 2. There may have been a subtitle, but I didn't write it down. Um, a game about uh, Big Macs and a big universe and just space, and it's, it's great. Uh, this is our first fan-translated game, so it was a Japanese or a Japan-only game released in I don't remember when, 94 or something. Translated in 2005 by legendary translator Gideon Z of the EN Genesis Translation Project. So uh, yeah, this is a first for us. It's our first fan-translated one. I think it, it. We'll see how it goes. I think it went well. Um, and I asked everybody to play an hour as usual. Uh, but how long did you play, and how far did you get in Cyber Night Two? I played about the hour. I almost exactly, actually, I got frustrated wandering the galaxy, looking for places that it would let me land where anything would actually happen. Um, I don't even know why I'm here. <laughs> I'm glad you're here, Shrek. Uh, I've played for about an hour and a half, and uh, I basically played until I rescued uh, that scientist and then stopped. I played for about an hour and 15 minutes, I think, and I didn't pay attention to the clues or know exactly where to go. So what I ended up doing was jetting around the galaxy, uh, shrug style, uh, looking for stuff which I did eventually find some stuff, and I also killed some terrorists, uh, and I even eventually, uh, after getting hints from the other hosts of this podcast, went to Mars, where I could not complete the first dungeon. And I, uh, I beat it. I played it for about 16 to 17 hours over a few days and just really turned it out. <laughs> yeah. I'm I'm amazed by that because <laughs> I played about I want to say about two hours uh, might have been a little shorter I think my in game counter was two hours but God knows I was fast forwarding through most of it um, I beat the first act out of how many are there five yes there are five so I guess I got a fifth of the way through the game but that's not really true <laughs> so and I I'm, I think this is probably the game that's going to have the most disparity between what people played you know, of the game, because, Kerr, you finished it, and I I almost just got stuck on wandering around until you helped me out, too, because I was like, I don't know what the hell to do. So, <laughs> um, oh, I guess I should... Pr I always fail to do this. I should probably kind of explain what this game is. So it's a, uh, a JRPG of sorts where you have big mechs 
and you outfit them and then you land on planets of which there are a fair amount. You kind of can jump around and go to different star systems, land on planets, and then you go to the one town that's on that planet and do something or fail to do something. Um, so yeah, it's, it's an interesting twist on the JRPG format. I, it remains to be how successful we actually thought that was. Um, so, but yeah. Um, okay, cool. So that's that's how far we got into it. I think let's just go ahead and jump into our first official topic, which is gun. And there's boy, there's a lot of gun to cover in this game, isn't there? Uh, there's, there's a lot of interesting structure and formula and mechanics and stuff in this that make it unique to other JRPGs from the time, I agree. There's also a lot of guns. Oh yeah, yeah, there's a lot of guns too. There's a lot of <laughs> guns, and you can swap out uh, which guns you're using in every single battle, every single turn. Is this the first game on this podcast with actual guns? Uh, Yes. The Caveman game had guns. Wait, what was that game called? How can I already be forgetting this? Oh, Prehistoric Man. It's not Chuck Rock. <laughs> yeah, it was yeah. That's all I could remember. All I could remember was that it wasn't Chuck Rock. Not okay. Chuck Rock, not Bonk. It, okay, it, yeah. it did not have guns, though. It had, like, you could throw tomahawks and spears and stuff. That's true. It only had metaphorical guns. Yeah, this is the first game we've played with an actual gun. Episodes six. Yes, six. <laughs> That's Incredible. amazing. I am fully unprepared to actually talk about the actual guns in this. It did go from 0% gun to 100% gun. Very quickly. What's your favorite gun? Mine is the needle gun. Mine was the napalm launcher. I probably most enjoyed the flamethrower. I, too, enjoy the needle gun because it brings to mind many fun associations. I liked the one that I don't remember the name of. It's like a machine gun that shoots everyone at the same time, and it looks like there's, like, caramel corn just shooting out of your gun everywhere. Yeah, that was a spray-and-pray kind of thing. There was, like, the SMG. There was a couple of them like that. There's a... The mechs get some really good guns later on, and that includes, like, the backup units you have can do things like shoot a lightning bolt out of the sky or um, just launch ICBMs everywhere, which is incredibly dangerous if you're in a town. Fortunately, you're on mostly desolate planets that only have one town in them. So mostly. It's fine. Uh, though, actually, I do want to say really quick that late in the game, uh, there will sometimes be enemy encounters where you don't actually get into a fight. It's just the enemy comes in and bombs you. And that happened to me quite a fair amount and every single time it did zero damage to me even if it hit me i have no idea what it was for there's a lot of oh man there's a lot so okay i want to i want to jump into the battle system in particular here because i feel like it was very different and also very hard to parse in some ways but you, yeah it's different from your typical jrpg in terms of it's on a grid so you're kind of moving your little characters around, but there are still sort of random encounters. It's not like a strategy RPG where that's like the whole thing. Um, so you move your little characters around and then you can either use melee weapons or you can use 
not melee weapons, guns, I guess. Um, and you can punch. You can get up to an enemy or a mech and punch them. That's right. There was a knuckle buster, buster knuckle. Oh, there's also you can even punch them without anything. Like if you don't have anything equipped, you just punch. You get. You also get a. I think the best uh, human melee weapon I got was the stun gun, which you get like halfway through. That's another interesting thing about this game. God, well, there's so many weird things to talk about with this game. But, uh, but okay, so yeah, the battle system, yeah, you, you could do melee, you could do range. If you're in melee range, you can't, you can't use a gun sometimes. I'm not quite sure. There were a lot of guns that I couldn't tell the difference between. Like, what's the difference between the plasma rifle and then the flamer? Like, they don't seem to do anything different except like slightly different damage. Like, stuff like that really confused me. Hey, I bet you guys are going to be pretty frustrated with this, but I just decided to go into my uh, game documents where I keep all of the readme files that come with patches, and there's an entire mini-manual for Cyber Knight 2. You're fucking kidding me. Oh, my God. Written up by Gideon Z, I suppose. Oh, wow. Shit. I, don't th- I didn't need a manual. I didn't find this game very confusing at all, honestly. Yeah, no, me either, but it, in- it includes things like, at the very bottom, it includes a segment that says tips for successful battles and stuff. So, like, there's... Like, this game, I think, was not hard to figure out, but it did ask you to take some time to get used to it and, like, just naturally, organically come to understand everything as you experiment with it. And I think that worked out actually rather well as a person who tends to be a bit resistant to that in some more complicated games. But... um but it would have been good to know about the mini manual ahead of time, probably. Yeah, because I, I yeah. did the lazy thing and downloaded a pre-patched version of this. <laughs> I didn't get the patch notes. I totally would have sent that around. So, interesting. I found the battles a little bit abstruse. Uh, I had a tough time. Really, I had a tough time with positioning because it wasn't clear to me where exactly you need to be standing in order to get off an accurate gunshot. So I would end up moving a little bit closer to the enemy and I'd be like directly across them like two spaces away and I would shoot my gun at them and it would miss almost every time. So, and also grenades missed every time that I tried to use one. So I ended up uh, giving up and doing only melee. So I had a team of punch mechs and that was all we did. We just surrounded every enemy and punched and punched and punched. Uh, um, were, when you missed, did it say miss or did it say zero? Uh, both, but more miss than zero. Okay, well, with miss, I'm not perfectly sure, but when it says zero, it means it usually means um, that enemy type was resistant to that type of attack, which there are multiple types, including laser, beam, uh, not laser beam, um, impact, and eh, something else. Fire, probably. Uh, I don't... Yeah, yeah. Yeah, fire was one I... No, it was heat. It's called heat. But yeah, so it's basically fire. That was... Fire attacks were basically, throughout the game, the only thing you could rely on if you knew an enemy was resistant to things. Like, for instance, bosses, always resistant to impact, which means you can't use missiles on them. Oh, yeah, because I I had one of those... I had a big-ass mech that couldn't move very much, but had a big old missile. Use that to take out a lot of things, and I'd encounter a boss and just get ripped to pieces so what i ended up doing was having i can't remember their names i know blade was the main character i had him running around with a big old laser sword so he was always just getting right up in their faces then i had a titan mech that was shooting missiles and then i had 
like a support mech that just sort of rounded the team out with like needle and flame and you know a, a melee as well just kind of jack of all trades there's another interesting system which i didn't see much use to because you have six party members at any given time but only three go onto the battlefield and the other three are support which maybe three times i saw them actually do anything it seems like in certain scripted battles your support team can uh can launch weapons at the people you're about to fight and weaken or destroy them but i don't know what triggered that i think it was all story no, it's uh, that they're with you if you're on a map outside of a dungeon. Oh, and all the only encounters I had outside of a dungeon just so happened to be scripted encounters. Okay. Yeah, later on there are a lot of situations in which you will be outside of a dungeon and there will be random encounters and they will show up to often destroy the enemies before you even start the fight. And also while outside of a dungeon, you can leave, you can let them do the healing and repairing, which is good if you don't have, for instance, uh, Vind or Najina in your team because they have the highest uh, repair and medical skills, respectively. Yeah, that was another interesting twist. This game, I, I felt like maybe it was just early on, but I would either go into a battle and utterly destroy them or die. There was, like, no in-between. There wasn't a lot of, you know, oh, I took a few hit points damage. It was like, I'm either taking zero or 50, which is all of my hit points. <laughs> so that kind of weirded me out, too. But in-between uh, battles, you could repair using repair kits, and it, you know, and then your repair kits would refresh as soon as you got out of the dungeon and back onto your ship. So you weren't buying supplies. You just sort of had a running tally of supplies that dwindled as the farther you got into the dungeon, which, again, was kind of neat. Like, there, there wasn't really an economy at all, so you didn't have to worry about money. And with as complicated a game as this, I'm kind of glad. Is the needle gun only a small arm to use against infantry, or is there like a needle gun equivalent for when you're a robo? Oh, wait a minute. Was the needle gun... Uh, yeah, because that's another thing. You could fight outside of the mechs as well, so you could just be a little person. The needle gun was... On, on foot, I thought that it was a, a mech thing. But yeah, I don't... There wasn't really a, a an equivalent. I guess it would have been one of the machine guns or, or, or like an assault rifle. I think it was assault rifle or something. That's probably why it was, I had no idea what anyone was talking about with the needle gun because uh, I don't think I did any on foot battles at all. Well, historically, it's time for Shrug's Gun Corner. Yes! <laughs> Historically, a needle gun was sort of like a, a, a pinfire revolver only, or a pinfire gun only, instead of the needle being, or instead of the pin being on the cartridge, it was part of the gun, so you essentially have a very long firing pin that enters the base of a paper cartridge and strikes a primer inside of it, but needle gun quote-unquote, in this context, probably refers to a projectile that is just basically a needle or a pin. And it's yeah. probably a Jerry Cornelius reference, which is cute. So when I see needle gun, my mind goes to a small projectile going at extremely high muzzle velocity, and I think armor penetration, and then you're in an environment with mechs, and obviously 
they did not exploit this idea enough. I like the the emphasis. I sounded like you're hitting your desk there. I like it. <laughs> I was hitting my desk with a pair of toenail clippers. <laughs> okay, well there you go. So I used a certain little mode I like to call auto execute, or wait, no, auto engage. Uh, in this game, you can do a menu option at the beginning of every battle, and one of the options is auto engage that lets you basically do the whole thing on autopilot so you don't have to press any buttons and the game does the battle for you, which since I didn't really understand the battle system, I appreciated a great deal. Uh, you could do this on most random encounters, but sadly you could not do it on forced encounters or on bosses or anything like that. So when one of those came up, I had to actually figure out how to do it. But the reason I bring this up mostly is because my girlfriend was watching me play, and uh, when it was time for her to head out, she left my house accidentally without all of her stuff, and then she came back and was like, I forgot all my stuff. I was on auto-engage. Nice. Cute. Yeah, I thought the auto-engage thing was really nice, though, because it, it seems like... <laughs> I have this thing, because I, I, I remember playing... like I don't remember what game it was, but it was my first like JRPG that had an auto-battle thing. And at the time, I was just like, well, why not? Why have any battles at all? You know, <laughs> just take them out. Um, but this one was it, it is kind of interesting because the battles are really slow. Like that's the biggest consequence of them being on a grid where you can choose every weapon every turn. It's not so much that they're more difficult in, in, in any way. Once you kind of figure out what you're doing, uh, they're just slow. And so I think they saw that and were like, yeah, let's add auto-engage so people can just sort of power through these. And frankly, the battles are pleasing to watch. Like, the mechs explode real nice, and the guns are big, and the sprites are gorgeous. And so, yeah, there's definitely something to be said for just kind of watching these battles. I ended up running from most battles that I didn't want to fight, though, um, just because it was irritating to me. <laughs> for what it's worth, that's not actually the worst idea, because... Most of the experience you gather is actually given out based on completing missions and, th and then going back to the ship and being given like a few thousand based on continuing the story rather than from killing enemies. Yeah, I noticed that because I was killing enemies and it was like you and at the end of the battle be like, oh, you got fucking six experience points. And then I'd get back to the ship and be like, oh, good job. You did it. Here's 400 experience points. I'm like, I am not doing any more battles. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. At the very end of the game, uh, I would still I'd beat some enemies and it'd say here you got like 40 experience points. And I'd go back to the ship after completing the mission and it'd say here's an extra 2000. Yeah, not worth it. They should have just cut out the random battles entirely. They don't add anything. I mean, I disagree. I think that uh, the little tactical elements of the game are a big part of the fun. Yeah, but I mean, like, if they kept all the forced encounters and maybe added a few more, that would have worked better for me, since the random encounters happen, like, every five steps. Yeah, the encounter rate is extremely high. Uh, I looked it up online, and apparently it is a higher encounter rate than even what was normal at the time. When you consider other things that I believe were released around the same time, like Dragon Quest V, which also had a high encounter rate. I only hit, like, two random encounters in the one dungeon that I did, so I, I'm still confused by everyone else's experiences with this game. <laughs> well, okay, so there's a town later on on a planet called Baronet, 
And uh, by that point in the game, you've gotten the ability to let your mech uh, hover so that you can cross over Swampland. And an extra bonus of the hover ability is that it uh, decreases uh, encounter rate. And I, when I had gone into that town, it was under attack by the Metalliforms, the enemy of this game. And uh, I had forgotten to hover. But also I wanted to talk to all the NPCs, which there were like five or six in the town. And this is a very small town. It should take like a few seconds to walk from there to the president's house. It took 20 minutes to get there from all of the encounters. Oh my god. Wow. Wow. That does... I, I do have a question uh, for the people who just wandered around space not knowing where to land and not knowing what to do. Did you not talk to any of the NPCs in the first town? I did, but they... And they did mention Mars, but I didn't make the connection that you could specifically seek out and go to Mars. I was in this solar system that you start in, and I checked every planet to see if one of them was Mars or something. <laughs> I didn't really think about Just my in case Mars is over in some other solar system, you know. Yeah, yeah, that's the thing. I didn't really think about real-world astronomy for a little while until later on I was like, wait a second, Mars, Mars, Mars. Oh, shit, maybe our solar system's in here. Yeah. Yeah, I went to Mars, and when I tried to land there, they said that security was too tight, so I couldn't. That may have not been unlocked just yet. I think that that might be either you got to do a few other things first, or maybe you did Earth instead. I don't know. I No, I tried both Earth and Mars. Okay, then it may have been too early. I did get confused at the beginning myself, and I think part of it is just because I'm not used to... Well, I guess in a JRPG, typically the first hour or two is a very directed experience. So I wasn't expecting to have to think, frankly. Um, so the, I, I talked to all the little pink-haired people in the, the main base, the Cotton Candy crew, and um, I, got, I read all the hints, and they just didn't fucking register as important to me. I'm like, why are you talking about the economy of another planet? Like, I don't care. Like, <laughs> it felt like flavor text, and so I just kind of blew it off. And then finally, Courier was like, oh, yeah, that's actually the only important thing. <laughs> and then I figured out where to go. So, yeah, the Cyber Knight series thinks like Famicom games. They are not yet to the level of codification and streamlined convenience that was in Super Nintendo games that you would see in Final Fantasy 4, 5, and 6, that you would see in the Mother series, etc., um, though I do want to touch on these mechanics in a second, um, but they think in terms of Famicom problem solving, where they expect you to take notes, they expect you to talk to everyone, um, though not everyone, they actually just want you to talk to um, the people they tell you to, um, especially the Cotton Candy crew, as uh, as Clint said. you They want you to talk to them, they want you to write down those proper names of the planet's to go to there and get those things done. The structure of the game is actually very much like Mass Effect. It's you're given an act, you're given a checklist of places to go to and missions attached to them, you finish those, and then you go back, and then it starts a new act. It's just like Mass Effect. It's just like a Bioware game. Yeah, I was actually going to say, instead of like a Famicom game, I was going to describe this as basically a computer RPG just on a console. Yeah. It, 
It reminds me most of uh, the Shadowrun game that came out on the Genesis or Mega Drive for the Europhotes, uh, which is nothing like the Super Nintendo Shadowrun. It's basically an open-world exploration RPG where uh, uh, you can just do whatever you want at any point. It kind of reminded me of Star Control 2 a little bit for obvious reasons. You know, Star Control 2 is a computer RPG from, uh, I think, the early 90s that's all about uh, you've got this great big universe, you've got your own spaceship, and you just go from solar system to solar system, and you can go to different planets in the solar systems. And it is quite similar to the way that this game does it, where you've got a list of planets, you pick one, you scan it, you can go to it. But uh, Star Control 2 is a bit more robust. There's more going on on each planet. You can land on every planet, not just the populated ones. You can get resources from them and all that stuff. Uh, It's a really good game. You should play that instead of this if uh, you're thinking about it. (laughs) Though I do want to highlight there's a reason why this game has such a weird, like, Western RPG vibe. If you looked at the name of the game designer, it was uh, Ryo Mizuno. Uh, who some people might know as uh, the person who did uh, Record of Lotus War and a whole bunch of tabletop RPGs in Japan. Oh, interesting. Okay, that definitely, that definitely, it would explain some things. Because, yeah, it feels like more Western RPG, computer RPG kind of thing, where you're not given, you're not on a on a train track to success, you know, like like your Dragon Quests and things like that. So, yeah, absolutely. Although I did notice that every village does have train tracks in it, so there's that. (laughs) Welcome to the Train Podcast, where we try and find trains in all the Super Nintendo games. (laughs) Trains and games rule. They should have more. (laughs) Uh, Okay, so, yeah, the structure of this game is really interesting. I wish that there had been more stuff to do, because it feels like, oh, okay, it's an open game, but you really kind of only have three things you need to do, and anything else isn't going to really work. Like, you can't land on an uninhabited planet, which is a bit of a bummer. Um, you know, stuff like that. But it, it, it sets the tone well. I think that there's... I, I think this belongs in Gun. Maybe it's more of a vanity thing, but there was also... The menu was kind of structured as a ship, so you would go to different parts of the ship to do different things. Um, which was cool at first, very good flavor, felt very nice. Um, and then after a while became a bummer uh, trying to like, because to go to a new planet, you have to go to the bridge. And if it's in another system, you then have to, you have to take off from the planet you're on, long jump to another system, which automatically scans the farthest planet outside of the solar system, which is almost always a gas giant. Then you have to do a short jump to the planet that you think is going to be the right one because there's no point in going to the wrong one. And then it scans that. And then you have to land. And then you have to go to the hangar. And then you can exit. And it's just such a bummer. And then you'll figure out, oh, no, they don't let uh, modules into this place. So you have to go back and then go out through the airlock instead. It's, It's very clunky. I always go out the airlock first. Me too. There are only like two dungeons in the entire, no, no, three dungeons in the entire game where you actually walk around as a person. Maybe it's because I didn't play it for very long, but I really found the light, light simulationist pseudo verisimilitude stuff pretty charming. Oh, certainly. I think it's charming. 
but after 15 hours, it grates a bit. <laughs> I was charmed by it, too. Uh, I mean, I honestly think that the Cyber Knight games are probably, more than anything, Ryo Mizuno's attempts to do Star Trek on a console. I could totally see that. Um, and I agree. I found it very charming that you could go through all the different rooms on the ship. There's a lounge, which is really just to, like, I guess, move your uh, equipment around on your characters and look at their status and all that stuff. But, like, the lounge is gorgeous. It looks like a place that I want to hang out. And, like, all of these rooms look like places you want to hang out. It's great. Funnily enough, the uh, the lounge is actually f- just for rearranging the characters in your team. If you want to rearrange their items, you have to actually go to the airlock, which is seems a bit ne- unnecessary. Yeah, that's weird. But it fits in flavor because the items are all on. Well, no, that's not true because you can rearrange the items on the people too. Is it better to say that you rearrange the items for people in the lounge and mechs in the airlock, or do you put all that in one spot? I don't know. Well, okay, so the people are rearranged in the lounge. The people, oh. uh, the people's items are rearranged in the airlock. The pe- the mech's items are rearranged in the hangar. So there's oh, three separate rooms. <laughs> That's Just right. like IRL. Yeah. Yep. Like, I mean, oh. I will I will admit that the, uh, the, uh, the guns are probably closest to the airlock because people are going to file out through there, and so they probably have, like, lockers and stuff, I guess. <laughs> I guess I think okay. Uh, this this is uh, getting on into vanity territory, which I'm happy with. But do we want to have any last minute notes on gun before we want to continue talking about how gorgeous this game is? I absolutely have some gun stuff I want to touch on before we go. If that's cool with you, good. That's that's great. I figured gun would be the longest segment of this game, honestly, because it's so mechanically. I mean, it, it, rich is the word I would use for it, even though I didn't enjoy uh, all, like all of it. <laughs> Um, yeah, I do have a gun thing, sorry, that I want to touch on right now because it's good, a good transition back from that vanity stuff we were talking about back into the gun. Uh, on the ship itself, I noticed that all of the standard video game mechanics have, like, metaphorical uh, flavor names to them that are I found pretty effective. The one that jumped out to me the most was uh, saving. Um, you go to, I think it's like the, the med bay or something, and when you save, you select clone code which i love and it's like you set up your code so that when you die they can clone you yeah and when you load the game uh it you choose the reclone option on the main menu instead of like loads game yeah that was so cool i wrote that down as well i was like i love that you clone yourself because so many games they don't really talk about saving in any way it's just like oh it's just something you do i love that this game explicitly is like when you die you die and you get recloned at your last spot like that's pretty fucking incredible that messed with my head a bit because i was like oh man the characters that are dead stay dead and there's a lot of discussions to be had about whether or not a clone is actually the same person blah blah blah, uh and all that but the reclone on the title screen is a cute bit of flavor, but I don't think it made super sense because if everyone dies, then you do go back to a previous point anyway. But it did make sense in that, like, if your mech breaks down, all you have to do is repair it. You don't have to use any special items. But if a person dies while you're outside, you can't treat them. They are permanently dead, and you have to go back to the ship and reclone them. Now, here's a here's a mechanical question because I died once, I want to say, or twice. And there were two options. There was reclone and restart. 
And I don't know mechanically the difference between those two. I'm assuming reclone is load the old save and restart is start from a previous point that determined by the game. But it seemed to go all the way back to the ship. I lost all my experience and started over from scratch anyway. So I was just, I guess the only, I guess that's if you haven't saved in a long time. If you, if you saved three planets back, when you restart, you'll only be on the same planet. Maybe that's what it is. I, I actually don't know. I looked at that and I was confused by it too. I just, uh, like real talk, uh, I used the speed up function, the, the space bar for this in RetroArch, and I use save states in this a lot, not because I think that those, like generally I'm against using those in most games because I like using the particular cycles and momentum that they were meant to be played with, but this game is just slow enough that I... I had to, or I would never have finished this game in time. Yeah, I used speed up a lot, and I saved stated a lot. I saved before I ran from a battle every time because I was never sure what I could run from. Courier, you explained to me that if you can do an auto battle, then it's not a forced encounter, which I didn't pick up on, and you can run from seemingly everything except forced encounters. Okay, should I get into my last bit of gun before we move on to vanity? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so... As I mentioned before, this game has some archaicness to it, some computer RPG, some Famicom RPG kind of stuff to it where it's very slow, uh, The you are meant to take notes. The uh, There is a an NPC at one point. You like There's a, the president of a planet. She tells you that you need to... She's like, okay, you went into this dungeon for me. Uh, I'm going to give you the anti-grav unit, but you need to go get it from my secretary. My secretary is somewhere around this town, and you're like, okay. So I went out and looked for them and spent like a good long while looking for them. The only guide on the internet, the one that assumes you're playing in Japanese, um, says that they're behind the building. They're not behind the building. They're behind an entirely different building, nestled away in a corner that you have to run around town looking for. And... That is the most archaic form of video game problem solving that I can think of. Um, but despite these archaic concepts and problem solvings and all this stuff in the game, this game, surprisingly, for its era, also had a lot of forward-thinking stuff. It had the auto-fight function. It has the units that are not in your team help you as backup when you're out in the field, and it gives them experience for helping. There are no shops, uh, so you never have to buy new equipment. The consumables you have are refilled upon revisiting the ship. Uh, the There are optional tutorials available at any time in the ship about how to do combat, both for people and for mechs. There's no grinding in the game. At one point, I tried to do grinding, and I realized it was kind of pointless, and that if an enemy was really tough in one area, you were just probably meant to run away from it. Just... There's a whole bunch of this stuff that seemed rather ahead of its time that they were actually thinking what is convenient or what can we cut out of the JRPG formula. For all of my talk about it being really slow and having to fast forward and shit, there was a lot of very fairly convenient stuff. And I, I really, really liked there, there was part of me that really liked the fact that you didn't have to worry about money and an economy and buying things and all that stuff. Part of me was like, this is a mech game. I should be able to salvage things from every single mech that I destroy and place them onto my body like a cyborg. Um, but I think in the long run, it was better to be a, a lot more simplified. 
um, and give you the flavor of mech without the mechanics of that. We should also note with regards to uh, the auto-engage, unlike a lot of games with auto-battle options, you can actually customize like how it worked in this game. Like You had a whole bunch of options you could turn on or off, like whether they're allowed to use items, whether uh, uh, it was a full auto or semi-auto uh, battle. I don't know what a semi-auto battle was, but that was an option. You're right. Yeah, it did have that as well. This game was ahead of its time in a number of ways. It's really interesting. I think that's partly because they weren't uh, designing around uh, the idea of how can we improve JRPGs. They were just very literally putting a tabletop RPG into uh, into a video game format. Because I looked up who the developers were, and it's Group SNE, who are mostly known as... Uh, tabletop game uh developers like that that's where rio mizuno that's his company and uh okay yeah you you mentioned that before and i i'm seeing that now that that's probably what it was it was probably more of an adaptation of one medium to another rather than uh being the 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 next evolution yeah and like um Almost their entire credits are just, like, uh, tabletop games they've made, and uh, they've only made a few video games as far as I can tell, and this is one of them. They also made the Mega CD version of Shadowrun, which I don't think anyone has played because it's uh, uh, untranslated. No, it's because there's an anime boy with a goatee. (laughs) That stops me from doing a lot of things. Um okay, I think that's true. I, I think we're I think we're gunned out. Um oh god, okay. I do have something else to bring up, Jesus. The dungeons, they suck. They're <laughs> uh, just like IRL. Just like IRL. Yes. Yeah. I mean it's actually like real life. In in a way, it was because the biggest thing getting in your way wasn't like weird walls or turrets or spikes. It was locked fucking doors. So it's like you could look at something and have no idea how you're supposed to navigate it because half the doors are locked. So it was simply trial and error, which I despised that. (laughs) And I, I only did the like two or three, two dungeons of of any real note. Uh, but they were they were both like that. It was always locked doors getting in your way. And I just I hated that. Real life space dungeons are filled with locked doors. It is a matter of public record. <laughs> it reminded me of um, mazes in old adventure games, just like stuff that's there to pad out the playtime and little else. It felt like that because it wasn't interesting to navigate. Like there was certainly a sense of of um, relief, uh, but you know, like okay, I got it, I understood how to do it, and I got through, and that's cool, you know, which is good. But it mostly, yeah, it just felt like a little bit of padding and another way to like force random encounters, you know. I'm the only one who actually appreciated the mazes because I guess I was thinking of it as an old game, and I would appreciate going through and trying to figure out like, okay, what way, like what doors are they going to lock? Which way are they thinking I'm going to go and which ways are they going to try and surprise me? So I would try to navigate through that. And that was interesting to me. And I don't mind 
when they give me a long, like an area with lots of dead ends, because usually I take that to mean that all of the encounters I'm going to, all the extra encounters I'm going to run into will be necessary to level up for what's coming next. Mind you, um, when the when most of your experience is gained through completing missions, that kind of defeats my point. <laughs> so now you know they suck. <laughs> now I can see enjoying them, so I just did not at all. So, uh, but yeah. Anyway, that was my last gun thing. Anything else gun wise before we move on? All right, cool. <laughs> um, okay, so our next topic is vanity. And I thought this game was real, real good looking. What did what did you all think? I love the long jump visual effect. Yes, definitely. Oh yeah, that looks great. The screen shakes and uh, the stars uh, smear and go all these rainbow colors. It's great. Yeah, the first time I saw that, I was like, "Holy crap! This doesn't. This is great." I don't think I've seen anything quite that impactful. Uh, in that way on the Super Nintendo before it. I mean, again, it felt like a computer uh, game to me because it, it just the whole screen shaking and uh, like splitting into these rainbow colors. And yeah, it was it was magnificent. And the first time you see it is part of the the opening, which is kind of I thought was a pretty impressive bit of presentation in and of itself um it just sort of slams you into the action as much as a jrpg can you're i don't know it seems like you've been captured somewhere and there's a bit of dialogue and then it your characters are making their way through a base and you free some people and then you run into somebody and some mysterious somebody that says I don't have a real name. Call me such and such. And then your character says, such and such, that's a weird name. Oh, that was <laughs> that was a CJ, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, and, she, she has a lot of interesting importance later on. And then your characters hustle their way out of the base and get into a, a few fights, and it gives you a little sort of snap, snap, snap preview of the battle system as they go through some in-person fights and then some mech fights. And I think there's like three battles and then they get attacked from above and they shoot this helicopter down. And then what are we going to do? Oh, we get on the shuttle and then they're in space and they're attacked in space and oh, here's, surprise, surprise, here's a spaceship controlled by an AI. We've come to rescue you, or I've come to rescue you. Okay, they get scooped up by it, and then it does that screen-shaking, color-bleeding effect, and I was really happy to see that. Certainly a lot more interesting. Again and again. Certainly a lot more interesting than... uh going into the first town and talking to the king and him being like, I need you to go on an adventure. Yeah. I need you to kill some rats in my basement. 
<laughs> I'm yes. the king and I hate rats. <laughs> My daughter uh, was kidnapped by the rats. Please go rescue her. My daughter is a rat. Please kill her. It's Same. me, Sir Patrick Stewart. <laughs> That's my Patrick Stewart impression. Oh, God. Oh, the rats. How did I end up in this sewer? <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> um, this game does start with, like, a really long cinematic sequence. Uh, during all of that stuff that Shrug just described, you don't control anything. You're, you're watching the whole thing. You don't even do the battles. You watch the battles. They're on auto-engage. Um, so this may be the longest opening cinematic of any Super Nintendo game that we end up playing for this podcast. Yeah, it was like 15 minutes. Like it was, it was a solid intro. Oh no, there's a cinematic that was longer and we're talking about it this episode, uh, for the salaryman corner. (laughs) (laughs) I just, I thought it was for as long as it was, it was the way it integrated the combat and the way it just kept its pacing up was it was very it was yeah it was remarkable for for the format it was very good at making me excited to play the game which is probably the best i could hope for an opening cinematic yeah, yeah, I was definitely... Well, it, you know, it did that kind of thing where it acts as a tutorial a little bit. Like, it's not telling you anything, but it's showing you, here's the battle system, and it's on a grid, and your support people will sometimes help you out, um, you know, and things like that. You can fight on pers- in person or in your mechs. Like, it, it, it got me excited for how this is mechanically going to work out without doing, like, uh, a dump of here's a bunch of garbage that you need to know how to play the game. Like there is no dump of about a bunch of garbage to how to play the game. You just have figured out anyway. But yeah, that opening was really, really cool. It also showed off. I mean, I just was really impressed with how good the mechs look, their animations, like the just crunchiness of everything. Like it was very like slam, bam, explosion kind of thing, which that, that opening cinematic showed that as well. Like I, I really liked how the battles looked. That does remind me, uh, earlier I posted a screenshot in the Discord that no one at home can see, but I was showing it to one second before, the singularity punch that you get later on. I forget what it's called, but it's the only thing in the game that once you your punch uh, like hits the enemy, the entire game freezes for a split second because and it's like and I don't think it's intentional. I think it's actually it actually causes it to lag to load the huge explosion uh, effect. And it's it's one of those things where the lag is cool. I mean, it looks from the screenshot like you punch someone hard enough that you form a black hole. That's definitely what's happening. That's literally is what it, what's happening, isn't it? It's a singularity punch. That's incredible. <laughs> yeah, that's dope. I wish I had that when I played. The one part of Vanity that I think this game falls down on is the music is just unbearable, and there's only, like, two songs. Absolutely disagreed. Uh, there was a little music I liked a lot. A little. After Act 1, all of the music becomes fantastic. Oh, God. You, would, you oh, say that, but we course. have no proof. <laughs> there, there are, like, five million combat themes and map themes, and the map themes all change every act to affect the current uh, tone of the story. And there are points in which, like, 
there was a point in which I had chased a dictator to a faraway planet called Beyond, and the combat music on the way to him was all extremely happy and full of violins and flutes. And there, uh, there was a planet I was on where I was fighting th- through like huge, weird, mutant animals, and the music was this like kind of almost somber sounding kind of song that just was uh made it sound very kind of removed from the technological spaces of every other planet and it's it the game the music after act one is just it's so many so many good tracks um if i thought anything falls short for vanity it's that uh in terms of map sprites and stuff this is a fucking fantasy star game that's true but it makes it less anime but who wants that um, I guess nobody. <laughs> I mean, I mean, uh, different strokes. <laughs> I was, I was struck by how anime this game was in general. And then the little map sprites are very like, I mean, realistic isn't the right word, but correctly proportioned, which actually kind of threw me off. So, but yeah, no, I didn't. I thought the music was too bombastic for its own good. And maybe you're right about it getting way better after act two or after act one. Uh, But I just thought it was like, it was this mixture of bombastic space. I don't know, horns, space horns. And then you'd get onto a planet and be like sort of dinky town music from any run of the mill RPG. And that's, it just didn't do it for me. Yeah. And like, those were the only two tracks in like the first two acts or in the first act. Uh, yeah, the first act is very, very monotonous music wise. Even I was like, this is terrible. So it was really weird that it eventually gets so much better and more diverse. There was one track that I really liked from the first act, which was um, when you get on the overworld of a uh, populated planet and you haven't entered the city yet and you're walking around, there's this, it's like this very short looping track, but it's got these like muffled marching drums and this uh, like kind of sad, like mysterious synthesizer over it. Uh, it's like very pretty. I don't know. It's it's like atypical Super Nintendo music. I'll play it underneath you talking. Right now. Right nice. now. By the way, if you guys want to see something bombastic, as you were just talking about, do you want me to post an image of uh, you destroying the final boss? Yeah, absolutely. Because I want to spoil the hell out of this game, because you, you're kind of waiting for Harmony to do the story stuff, which I think will be really interesting. Yeah, yeah I, uh, I, we should have said at the beginning of the podcast, but we're going to be spoiling the hell out of this game. Which, yeah. Which is uh, kind of a shame to me, because... There is almost no information about this game on the entire internet, that in the English-speaking internet. So it's like, if you want to play it, t- turn off the game console, Snake. Uh, go play it. I mean, I, I guess turn like, off the podcast. You know, whatever. <laughs> well, it's kind of cool, though, because this is the way, personally, this is the way I experience a lot of games, is by listening to podcasts and watching videos of games I would literally never play. So, uh, So hopefully people get a good good experience with this and if you really did want to play cyber night 2 you probably already did honestly <laughs> oh my god wowzers all right let's describe this thing so i see no let's not describe <laughs> it <laughs> let's just let our reaction speak for it no i want to hear how somebody would describe this 
I mean, I think I, I described it right there. There is a bat pterodactyl creature thing, which is its eye is the eye of the boss and also its ear. Um, or wait, no, its eye is the eye of the boss. Its wing is its ear, which means its ear resembles one of my ears. <laughs> um, it, it's just a severed head made out of bat pterodactyls. In space. In space. And yeah. you can tell that it's moving very yeah, I, quickly, too. I want you to understand that even in the combat grid, the background is uh, parallax scrolling stars going all in one direction and then eventually slowing and going in the other direction. This is actually why the Hague has um, outlawed Tulpa and I mating, because our progeny would be this creature. <laughs> it, it's true. <laughs> Oh my! It reminds me, if anything, it reminds me of the final boss of Actraiser, which is this gigantic gargoyle demon thing in space. No, it yeah, starts as do. a giant head, and then it's like some other shit. Actraiser, you do shoot a face in space, yeah. The space face. Space face. This uh, weirdly reminds me of uh, the final boss of Kirby's Adventure as well, which isn't really a face, but you do speed through outer space with stars scrolling by, and it turns into a shooter. It's a good final boss. That's a trope, isn't it? Like, the final boss is in space, even in games that where that doesn't make sense. I feel like that comes up a fair amount. <laughs> yeah, I think probably, yeah. I have a Vaporwave connection uh, to continue our chat, our Vaporwave chat from last week. Wait, wait, wait. Let me, let me do a radio thing. Vapor, Vapor, Vaporwave connection. Okay, go ahead. Our new, <laughs> welcome to our new recurring segment, the Vaporwave Connection. Uh, there, in some tracks that I heard in this, uh, there is a sound effect that sounds, it's kind of hard to describe, but it sounds kind of like, um, like water, like someone, just like a water drip maybe, but like a cartoon water drip. But I've heard that sound in Vaporwave. That sound is used frequently in, um, Farside Virtual, this amazing album by James Ferraro that's one of the, like, foundational Vaporwave albums. So that was weird. Someone just drove by behind you, and I thought that was, like, Vaporwave music starting, and I got very confused. Yeah, I thought that was intentional. <laughs> I wish, no. That was actually a weird wind blowing my window, like, blinds. Evocative. Vapor. Wave. I summoned the spirit of Vaporwave. I'm here. Wave, 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 wave. <laughs> oh, uh, one extra point I have for Vanity, because I touched on the music that is really good and nobody got to hear. I touched on the sprites that look like a Fantasy Star game almost point for point. Um, a thing that I noticed, and I had this confirmed by Gideon Z himself, uh, the man who worked on the translation, uh, many of the enemy mechs in this game are named after comic book heroes. Now, I didn't notice this at first because I noticed that there was an enemy called Storm. There was one called Boom Boom. I just thought that was them being goofy. There was, oh, there's a whole bunch of them. There's a Wolverine. There's a, there's a Hulk. It all started to come together around the time I found the mech Teen Titan. <laughs> I mean, you also just posted a screenshot of someone named Blades, oh, which shit. is another comic right. character. Oh, God. I didn't uh, let's see. There, Jesus. 
Is Wesley Snipes? Can someone tweet this at Wesley Snipes? I see. Later on, we'll there's do. a there's a hovercraft titled Ghost Rider, which is an absolutely fantastic name for a hovercraft. Um, there's a stalker and a fat man. You're just describing me. Shut are, up. Those those work. <laughs> Actually, neither. <laughs> um, but but yeah, there's a whole bunch of like just little things in there that the cl- the sooner you figure it out, the sooner you're like, oh. This is a cute little thing, and I and I checked with Gideon Z, and this these were this way in the original Japanese. These were not um, a bit of localization on on Genesis's part, and I just think that's maybe like a little little bit of little long running Easter egg by the devs for probably enjoying the kind of stuff that people who make tabletops enjoy, the kind of science fiction and pulp that they get into. Yeah, I thought that was a really interesting find. Like that's, I, I like that it's that way. Because okay, with with fan translations, this is sort of a, a a thing. With fan translations, it's hard to know what the original intent was versus what the fan translator thought was funny. And Gideon Z has always been like the ideal for not doing stuff like that. Um, but you never know. Maybe you know it's like oh, maybe the names are all references to Japanese wrestlers, and nobody was going to get it, so they made the editorial decision to change it to X Men or something like that. You know, um, but the fact that it was in the original is pretty pretty interesting. So, I have the tiniest note for Vanity, and that is an example of sometimes this game puts in little details that are completely unnecessary but nice. And the best one that I noticed is. Uh, I went to this town during my period of random exploration. I went to this very peaceful town where uh, it had streets that had cars going back and forth on the streets. And if you stood in the middle of the street uh, blocking a car, it would like drive up to you and then stop right before it hit you. And then it would honk its horn at you over and over and over again until you moved. And if you tried to talk to the car, then you would just hear the driver sighing. It was great. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, the first time that happened to me, I ran into a car that said, uh, oh, let's see, hold on. It says right here, it's dangerous to get too close to a running car. Uh, all the cars actually have their own lines. I was surprised by this that I discovered That's l- great. later on in one of the towns. Uh, it, one of the cars that bumped into me was screaming something like, how badass is this limousine I'm driving? Yeah! <laughs> <laughs> That's oh, amazing. I, I mean... That. Actually, like, just the fact that there are cars everywhere, I think, is great on a Super Nintendo game. Like, just that weird little attempt at uh, realism in what is generally a fairly goofy and unrealistic game. Yeah, it made a couple of weird little motions towards that, which I, I definitely appreciate it. And again, I think goes back to that CRPG tabletop roots kind of thing, where you're always looking to get more, a little more, quote-unquote, realism into your game and and in engage people in that way so yeah it's interesting okay what huh huh what are you gonna say shrug oh i just i just thought of a thing that was visual and not too abysmal probably not but just making the habitable planets for the most part look earth-like in the short jump screen that was polite of them thanks (laughs) It was. I actually ran into one Earth-like planet that I couldn't land on because it was like, there's no one here, you idiot. <laughs> well, and, and sometimes there's no atmosphere. Oh, that's what it was. There's, it no, there's no atmosphere, but there's lots of green growing things on it, too, that you can see from space. Space trees. Um, yeah. Um, so there's that. 
Also, there's a, at one point, very, maybe the closest thing, place you can actually land from your initial liftoff point. Um, you can go and seek out one of your party members' mothers and their brother, Tito. You can look for Tito, but he's not there. But they make a big deal about how what a blasted wasteland the place is. But they have crops. The crops look okay. I didn't feel good about that. <laughs> if you stuck through the game, you'd feel a lot worse about it. God, we'll have to get to that. <laughs> okay, I have one last vanity thing, and then I do want to. I want to try and get get a little move a little bit further. But I do feel like this game has a problem with scale. It's a game that makes you want to feel like it's a really big scaled game. There's like sixty or forty or something. There's like forty different stars you can go to. Maybe not even that many, but it feels like a lot. And they all have six planets, and then they all have at least one inhabited planet, I think. Um, but then you land on the planet and you could go to one town and you can't leave like this area, the size of the TV, the size of your screen. Um, and it's just, it's not a good scale. It makes me like the more I played, the more I felt like it was just too small. Like they were trying to make it feel big and it felt actually really small. I mean, it was a super Nintendo game. I know, I know. And like they, you, you do your best and everything, but, uh, it, it, it's the illusion of vastness, I think, is more important than actual vastness for a game that takes place in space on a tiny machine. I suppose it, you're right. It felt big for a Super Nintendo game. I liked the sense of scale in this more than I liked it in Mass Effect games, because this felt like they were trying to make it as big as possible. I landed in a place where the one town which on the larger the world map such as it was was several buildings and when i actually got the micro view it was a single farmhouse surrounded by all these chocobo like birds that they were actually speaking of scale um all the birds can do is say their the name of their species over and over again. And when you talk to one of the people there, because there's they're there studying this bird in this single farmhouse, which is apparently the only building on this entire planet, they say, these things are remarkably smart. We figure in another thousand years of evolution, they'll have a civilization like humans. <laughs> I forgot that. That's hilarious. So, Yeah. I, oh, I, I did appreciate that those things, I believe they were called caracals, are literally just chocobos. Uh, excuse me, they weren't, they weren't chocobos. That would be copyright infringement. <laughs> they were space chocobos. Oh, right, of course. Chocobos. <laughs> oh, I should note that, uh, in fact, uh, this game does not limit us to one town per planet. But you wouldn't know that uh, without just trying a bunch of uh, stupid things that the game doesn't tell you to do, except one NPC in one part of uh, the beginning town says oh, something yeah. about it. Yeah, uh, Kazilin, the starting planet, has two landing spots, and it's the only planet that's like that. <laughs> and they say, like, oh, some planets you can land on multiple spots. Uh, it would be good to remember that. And I tried it on every single planet I went to, and it was just literally the one. <laughs> That's just great game design. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the, thing, the thing this 
or the one game it reminded me of the most personally was um, Escape Velocity, the old Mac game. And on this subject, maybe it would have felt more appropriate to even reduce the uh, the world, the worlds, the towns such as they are to menus and just let your head fill in the space because... You know, on that, it's just in that game, you go to a place and what you can do is limbed by here are these options. You can go to a bar, you can gamble, you can look for whatever. And because you're not actually wandering around a space, you can like whatever. It's just reduced to its function and you're not limited by the capacity of the whatever words, words, words. No, I, I agree. I actually think that would be, I mean, as, as much as this game uses menus to abstractify um, things like spaceships and whatnot, it would be interesting to, if they had done that with planets and actually maybe made it feel even bigger because you're not like, oh, it's one town boxed in by mountains and there's only seven people in the town. Like, it feels like you're just doing the things that you need to do because that's all you need to do there. So, yeah. You know what I have a bit of a theory regarding the one town per planet thing is that what if there really is only one town per planet and that at this point in the future, in the year uh, 2350 something, I believe, that uh, land owning has just progressed to the point where people will buy an entire planet and then not use the land. (laughs) Capitalism run amok. I mean, that sounds pretty reasonable. Like, the first two planets uh, you're on, people just, like, treat them like uh, vacation spots. Well, yeah. Um, Kazelin is specifically a fake vacation spot as a disguise for the base. But, yeah, I, I agree. I really like that person in the floating in the ring. It's the best. Did you figure out how to talk to her? Of course not. How do you do that? Oh, okay. If you just go directly above her all the way across the water, she'll actually interact with you and just be like, it's nice out here. Like, there's those three people. There's the guy on the left who's like, this place is fake, lol. And the second one who's like, I'm in the water. And the third who's like, I'm getting un- I'm getting dressed in public like every fucking chapter. This is harassment. Go away. And they change what they say every act. Eventually, the guy on the left is like, oh, my God, I've been out here for five acts. I'm getting a terrible sunburn. Um, or he doesn't <laughs> mention the five acts thing. He doesn't break the fourth wall, but he does say, like, I've been out here so long. The girl in the water accidentally spoils something later in the game and is like, oh, what? This one person you're looking for? I haven't seen them. And I'm like, but I wasn't looking for them. What? And then later I'm looking for them. Yeah. So I was like. Oh, stop that. I hate when that happens. And the girl on the right is just like, eventually, like, I'm going to tell my husband or the cops or something. (laughs) So I like that planet. It's a nice planet. (laughs) Okay. Uh, We got to move on. I I mean, I feel like like this is already a natural transition to uh, poetry because we're now getting into uh, what people say. Are you going off the record? <laughs> yeah, that's actually true. That's not our next topic normally, but I think it might work. Uh, let's go to poetry.
And boy, this game had a lot, had a lot of weird little lines. Like it was real good stuff. And the more, like now that I've learned, because I was going to say, I don't know how much of that is attributable to it being like a 12 year old translation, like that, you know, just goofy crap that the person injected. But learning that the X-Men thing was really like real, that was really translated that way. I, I think that most of this is probably pretty accurate, accurate to the original Japanese. So what do we got for poetry? Uh, I do want to say real quick that since you mentioned how old this is, that I did find on the website Fantasy Anime, uh, the person running that had an interview at the time of the website with um, for Cyber Knight 1 when that came out. I think Cyber Knight 2 had not been released yet, or had not been translated yet. When Cyber Knight 1 was released, uh, they interviewed Gideon Z. And I remember at the beginning of the interview, he mentioned that having just recently translated Cyber Knight 1, he was, I believe... 23 years old so god i'm old this is a very talented Seriously. translation and hack so i'm very impressed that he's been in the business this long i'm looking at yeah he was 23 in 2004 and doing my god he did uh treasure of the rudras and is it live a live live a live live a live live a live okay thank you wow oh my god and then eventually he went back and did the Live Live 2.0 translation, and it's uh, one of the best I've seen in uh, fan translations. He redid Treasure of the Rudras as well. Did he eventually redo that? I want to say he did, because I played it once, and the translation was really kind of wonky, and then I played it a second time later, and it was a much better translation. I remember him mentioning <laughs> so... in the interview that he wanted to redo Treasure of the Rudras, so makes sense. So uh, I went to this... Oh, okay, so I mentioned in the chat earlier that uh, parts of this reminded me of the game Soul Blazer, which was the subject of our debut Lost episode, uh, our Forever Lost ain't, uh, artifact. Uh, sadly, half the recording got deleted, but I went to this city in this game in the point of time where I was going to Random Planets, and I got to this one very, very happy town where... Uh, Everyone was only talking about the mayor of their town. I forget what his name is. It was like Lan or something like that. And, um, oh, do you remember Courier? Uh, it's Lana. I have, it's Lana. He's a, That's he's a pacifist. Guy. That was on Takamagahara. Mm -hmm. the, the, the planet with the really um, hard to so... remember name. Go on. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, so in that town, everyone is talking about uh, Lana. And in Soul Blazer, it's kind of like that, too. Everyone's like... Gosh, I sure do love the king of this town. He's great. Oh, I heard this is going on with him. Oh, well, I heard that he's on the outs with so-and-so. It's just like the entire town is just gossiping about one person. He's a, he's a hot topic. <laughs> my my favorite... I, I just wrote down a few lines because, there, you, you know, in RPGs like this, you get these NPCs that don't say anything meaningful to you. So they have to say something, though. And they say something weird. I think my favorite, though, was somebody walking around on a very peaceful planet. And they just said, quote, war is a foreign concept to us. And I'm like, yeah, there's definitely going to be a war here before this game is over. Was I right, <laughs> Courier? <laughs> uh, well, what planet was it? Because I'm going to say yes. Oh, God, I don't remember what planet it was on. Uh, I think well, it was the main town on Kazalin. I think you're right. I, mm, maybe. Maybe so. Okay. Yeah. Um, I don't know if anything happens there, because after the one time you go there, you never have to go back. But everybody does end up involved in this intergalactic war. So 
Um, this is quite the space opera. I just love the idea of walking around being like, war is a foreign concept to us. Poverty holds no hold. Holds no hold. You know what I mean. <laughs> just like spouting these very broad things. My favorite line in the game is uh, when you go into uh, the meds bay and uh, try uh, try to treat your wounds when your party is completely healthy. Uh, the person there says, love sickness is my cross to bear. Whoa. Yeah, what does that mean, actually? That Why really, is she saying that? I'm really worried about her. Yeah, I the, am too. The only thing I can think of, and this wouldn't make sense because it's described, it describes someone else, is that uh, if you wait on the attract mode, it lists the bios for the characters, and Vind, I believe it, I believe it's Vind, it says that uh, at some point in Cyber Knight 1, his previous clone was in love with Najina, and that now that's not the case, um, probably due to a, something in the cloning process. Um, and I think that he maybe doesn't remember it. I think maybe it says that. And if if the woman in the med bay is Najina, which I don't think it is because there's a different uh, portrait, then that would be interesting and maybe relate to what she's saying there about love sickness is my cross to bear. Yeah, I, I know she's a party member, but... Um, she's also the medical expert in the party. She she has the highest uh, medical oh. skill. So I don't know why I put that in chat instead of saying that out loud. By the way, <laughs> just you're ashamed of yourself. Yeah. Um, yeah. So like that yep. is the only thing I can put together. But I am not sure because otherwise they never name who the woman in medbay is. And as far as I know, they generally name people. But wait, the guy in the lab is. Professor Dinette, they name him. I don't know if they ever name the guy in the hangar, so psh, I don't know. And, yeah, and it sounds a like a mystery. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I get your mysteries out of this poetry for fuck's sake. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Um, there is a screenshot that Virtual Clint posted in the chat earlier that is also a line that I saw in the game that made me happy. At one point, you go to a planet that's having a civil war. And the whole planet looks all industrial and horrible. I mean, it's just like giant, uh, like industrial tanks everywhere, like tankers, like big vats or whatever. But um, there's a woman walking around, and when you talk to her, she says, the police aren't good for anything, which, here, here. <laughs> yeah, that, that's the, game the <laughs> This is a woke video game, especially if you get through later, because this game does actually... Uh, touch on white supremacy. Yeah, I saw that on your Twitter. I was like, wait, what the fuck? But before we get on to white supremacy, I do want to list off some other lines that I wrote down or took screenshots of. Yeah, I'll get I'll get to the, the harmony stuff later. I'll get to the story later. So please, uh, list off some poetry. So, would you like a popsicle? Was my favorite line from any of the uh, NPCs from what little I played. I liked a, a certain woman in an underground civilization who said, do not speak to the women unless you have to. It's immoral. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's really good. Uh, some bit of uh, found poetry while I was doing the training mode was, uh, you'll be fighting Mars with Mars as the battlefield. <laughs> <laughs> that's good. Sorry, I'm eating. Hold on. <laughs> I'm trying to turn that into a joke in my head, but it's already there. It's already a joke, so... Uh, there's one in which um, 
a town that claims to be pacifist is eventually wrapped up into fight, and uh, one of the kids walking around at one point says, is war as cool as it looks? And I think that's actually <laughs> a bit of funny and a bit of poignant, because like there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff in this game about how the war touches everybody. Um, it reminds me of another planet in which there's an uprising, and at one point, there's a kid asks you, and they say, "Hey, what's a coup?" That's a little that's a little more funny than poignant, but it's interesting. Hey, what's a coup? What? <laughs> that's weird. It's pretty cool if you ask me. Another uh, shut up. <laughs> <laughs> there's another couple of things that are. Uh, let's see. In Takamagahara, there's a woman in front of a tunnel who says ha- says something like, have you ever seen a rainbow before? And Blade will inst- like just naturally reply, uh, yeah, why do you ask? And she'll say, oh, no reason. But la- later, you'll be in a swamp and you'll find a crashed spaceship with a dying professor inside <laughs> and he'll tell you that it- it's a it's a there's a password to give her. And the password is, you can't see rainbows from space. I've been racking my brain to figure out if that's supposed to be indicative of one of the themes in the game, if that's supposed to be indicative of a sort of hopelessness. But also, it's it's a line that's related to the religion in Takamagahara, which, spoilers, eventually it turns out is a front for the Earth Federation, because, haha, Japan hates religion. <laughs> <laughs> Oops. <laughs> Wow, this game's plot is a lot more complex than I expected. Oh yeah, it, it gets there. You you just wait. I'm I'm gonna have a whole bunch of stuff to talk about. And like this is probably one of the darker uh Super Nintendo games I've ever played. And uh the last couple lines that I could think of sorry to uh just steamroll everyone about this segment when they were asking for it themselves. Is that at the end of the game the, the whole cotton candy crew as Clint called them? Um, the ones that tutorialize you in the top left of the facility. They normally tell you the controls and stuff like that. And near the game, they'll actually be like, oh, yeah, you can't actually hit bosses with this thing. I guess we should have told you that earlier. Um, and in the Act 5, one of them says, there's nothing left for us to tell you. Thanks for spending so much time with us. And the other one says, I guess now you'll be going for real. I miss you already. Oh, that's kind of sweet. <laughs> it's kind of mother. Yeah, it's 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 very it's touching. I like the way Ida talks about the ship when you first encounter it in the opening. She says, hey, I'm AIDA. I'm the artificial intelligence in control of this ship. And then she says, then she blows up some of the pursuing ships and says, her name is Gal- is the Galvo Dirge. She is to be your new home. It's just, hey, you're in trouble. But welcome home. Yeah, I like that. There's a that is surprising. There's a lot of little welcoming aspects in the game when otherwise bad shit is constantly happening. So I have one more line of poetry that you know we've all been talking about this really good shit, this really cool stuff, poignant. You know, my one of my favorite things is I get out of a uh, I get out of a spaceship that I just landed. It's huge. It's bigger than the town I'm about to go into. I'm I'm walking in these. There, there's there's six of us in walking death machines with missiles and grenades and flamethrowers. And I walk into a, a barren town with farms, as you mentioned, Shrug. It's, but, it, you know, otherwise they're having a hard time. And I walk up to this woman in my walking death machine and she says, it's a good day to do laundry. And that's it. And I'm just like, this is 
this is silly. This is really ridiculous. I mean, how else are you supposed to react to a giant robot death machines? It's a good day to do laundry because I just shit my pants. Maybe she didn't shit her pants. Maybe that's just a way that the developers have of implying how normalized giant walking death robots are in the Cyber Knight 2 universe. Oh, hey, giant walking death robot. Who gives a shit? I'm going back to my laundry. I got shit to do. <laughs> maybe she was uh, Maybe she was angling for you to do her laundry for her. <laughs> maybe. Hey, that thing's got missiles, but it doesn't have a washing machine in it. <laughs> <laughs> that woman, uh, wait. No, I'm thinking of a different one, but the people in that town are, seem rather accustomed to just shit going on around them. Yeah, it seems like it. <laughs> All right, I think, okay. Any last minute poetry? Okay, cool. If, if you've got oh, to go get ahead. it out now, because I'm probably going to be going on for a while on Harmony, and I've already been talking a lot. I've appreciated that you actually are the only person who finished this game, so uh, continue talking a lot. But but in the meantime, let's take a break for Salary Man Corner! So, 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 salary man corner. Corner. <laughs> okay. Um, so our first, this is our, our first horse racing game. It's called Turf Hero. I put an exclamation point on it. Is that in the game? Don't remember. Um, now, not to be confused with the trans exclusionary radical feminists. <laughs> yeah, it's spelled, this is spelled with a U, not an E. <laughs> This is not uh, a game in which you are like, I'm going on a crusade to tell women that they're not women. <laughs> Gamer Gators would probably be really confused by a turf TERF hero game. I think everybody would be really confused. I'd be very confused, especially if it showed up on the Super Nintendo. I'd be very confused. <laughs> um, so, okay, it's a horse racing game. We played it for all of five minutes. We're trying to we're trying to get through these games that that aren't going to mean anything to us or our audience. So uh, that's what Salary Man Corner is. And uh, yeah, let's talk about Turf Hero really quickly. Um, it's a horse racing game. I couldn't figure out how to get to the horse races other than through versus mode. Um, anyone else have a brief thing to share about this game? They okay. didn't let me. They didn't let me name my horse. Ah, sorry. Or no, 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 no. <laughs> I couldn't name my horse that either. Sorry if that was too loud. <laughs> this is the game that had the longest opening cutscene I have ever seen. Is there an open? I did, I skipped that. I guess somehow. Yeah, I didn't notice that. You can skip it. <laughs> I just smashed the A button and it went through all the text rather quickly. Yeah. There's like 20 pages of text. I mean, I I can confirm that you can get through pretty quickly because I had to go through it three times because I kept getting soft-locked into the menu not knowing what to do. <laughs> well, that's it. Um, <laughs> I did... I This just... I didn't really get anywhere in it, but it did remind me of the time I returned to my uh, childhood arcade in Seaside, Oregon, after years of not being there, and discovered that they had devoted a huge chunk of floor space to a multi-module, gigantic 
um, horse racing simulator something or other and was very confused and frightened. I, yeah, they have they so, have those in the Dave and Buster's that I used to go to in, in Denver, and I always thought they were weird and crap. When was when was this? Uh, I've actually been to the arcade in Seaside, Oregon before, and uh, it did not have that when I went there. It did have uh, one fighting game, though. It had uh, X-Men versus Street Fighter with both of the joysticks broken. <laughs> This was probably in the early 2000s. Um, In the 90s, it was the best arcade. It was enormous. It had both Capcom D&D games. Um, And the last time I was there, which was years and years ago, like they had like two dozen cabs that were shoved, not working, not plugged in into some back corner of their space. I don't know. It was just, it was a very sad moment. And there was a horse racing game. So this game, uh, we could not do anything with because it was all menus that were in Japanese and none of us can read Japanese. But um, I would like to tell a uh, horse jockey related story if uh, y'all will allow yes I would I would yes. love for that does the jockey get hurt uh, almost um, so does the jockey learn to love again no <laughs> <laughs> but, he never did <laughs> uh, it's more of a metaphorical jockey really but um, so what happens is there was, jockeying for position arguably um Okay, so once upon a time, several years ago, I was an undergraduate, and I was home in Sarasota, Florida for the summer. And that summer, um, most of my friends from high school had moved out, so I didn't know that many people there. People that I did know were um, a little shady. Uh, The way that they would always hang out was that there's a 24-hour Starbucks, a single one in town, and what they would do is... Uh, hang out there way late into the night. Like I'm talking like 3 a.m., 4 a.m. They'd be sitting at the tables outside the Starbucks. And uh, so I used to go there every now and then because I didn't know that many people, you know, and, you know, you got to hang out with someone over a long summer. So I went out there and one day after being out there for like three hours, uh, someone suggested that we go to a graveyard to try and get sound recordings of ghosts. So... I was very down for that. I was like, finally, something interesting. So we got a group of people together. Uh, We drove two separate cars, and we drove over to the graveyard. Um, Again, this would have been like 3 or 4 a.m., so middle of the night. Uh, The graveyard is a small, small graveyard that is off of a very, very busy street, like one of the most busy streets in the whole town. It's like a central throughway. So... We go over there and we park our cars um, across the street from it. Like we park a decent ways away because you can't really park in a graveyard in the middle of the night. So then we walk over and we cross that very busy street and we get into the graveyard. And the very instant that we touch down in the graveyard, the second our feet hit the entryway, three cop cars pull up. Like, and I had noticed a cop car doing a U-turn before uh, while we were crossing. So I think the cop car just happened to be passing right when we got to the graveyard and saw us go in and called backup. 
So before we even get inside, really, there are three cop cars there with their lights going. And, like, six cops get out of these cars, and they start questioning us. They're like, what are you doing here? Why are you kids here? And something you should know about the cops in Sarasota, Florida, is that they are extremely suspicious of young toughs. They, they hate youths. And the reason for this is there aren't very many youths in that town. It is the highest median age uh, county in the U.S. Um, uh, you know that Florida stereotypically is full of retirees, old folks. Uh, Sarasota, more than most towns especially, uh, is. So when you're young, you're kind of uh, part of that class of people that uh, gets funny looks when you go into a grocery store or whatever. So uh, these cops are all questioning us, and they are very intent on finding out whether we have drugs or not. And they're all like, you kids have uh, any of that uh, weed? You have any uh, marijuana on you? And we're all like, no, no, no. And I certainly didn't. And as far as I knew, none of the people I was with did. And we were all denying it, you know. And they start um, trying to pull tricks on us. Like, one cop says, like, there's, like, a good cop and a bad cop situation going on here. Like, there's this one cop that's swaggering around, this huge white dude with a bald head who's, like, acting really overconfident. And he's making all these snide remarks at us. Like, he's actually being insulting. Like, he's having a fun time insulting these teenagers. And uh, then there's this other cop, this woman who's trying to be the good cop. And she says... Well, you know, if you have anything, you could just throw it on the ground and uh, we'll forget this happened. And um, luckily, no one was dumb enough to actually do that. I found out later on that one of my party there did actually have weed on them and they would have most certainly gotten arrested if they had fallen for that. So uh, one of the snide remarks that the swaggering bad cop uh, directed towards me was, Hey, uh, you could uh, you could be a jockey. You ever think about that? <laughs> Which uh, is because I'm like five two, so I'm pretty short. <laughs> what the fuck? Ah, <laughs> you. He was an asshole. Much weight on a horse. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. It sounds sounds to me like the police aren't good for anything. Exactly. It ties into the central themes of that game. But uh, yeah, I was like, wow, you're making fun of the height of a teenager because they walked into a graveyard. And we did tell the cops that we uh, were looking to record ghosts, but uh, that wasn't good enough. They really weren't buying that. But uh, after keeping us there for like a solid 45 minutes, just trying to get us to admit to some kind of crime, they finally let us go. And none of us got in trouble. And that's when I found out that someone did have weed on them the whole time. But we got off scot-free. But yeah, that night sucked. Oh, my God. I'm sorry. I'm sorry you got harassed by the police. But I'm glad that this story was not about a ghost jockey, which is what I was afraid of. (laughs) Uh, You mentioned a graveyard. God forbid. I am also afraid of ghost jockeys. They're, <laughs> They're so small. <laughs> I am sorry that the police suggested a career for you. <laughs> the thing is, like, that's the day where it's like, now I know I can never be a jockey. Because <laughs> then I'd be fulfilling. Kind of satisfaction. Exactly, I'd be fulfilling the police's prophecy. That fucker. <laughs> <laughs> All, right, All my so- jockey dreams dashed. 
dashed upon the gravestones like so many flowers. <laughs> In Seeker later, he's just like, please do what I was never able to do. Yeah, maybe, <laughs> maybe he just was a lapsed jockey. I'm too big for this. <laughs> he like grew too large and he's like, I have to give up my jockeying and become a policeman. <laughs> it's a natural career progression. <laughs> They won't even let him be a horse cop. Yeah. <laughs> You'll crush the horse. <laughs> they just don't let him near any horses. <laughs> well, <laughs> on that note. <laughs> uh, so that was Turf Hero. <laughs> um, okay. Oh. That's all part of the game. So, yeah, that's oh, what yeah, happened that's in the game. There. Yeah, that's the opening cutscene. <laughs> yeah, that's the long cutscene at the beginning. Yeah, the one in <laughs> Japanese that... Topo was talking about it's all of that is just the story about jockeys and ghosts. You could be a jockey, and then it dumps you into a menu. <laughs> choose your horse. No, the, it, it doesn't say choose your horse. The top it says, "Do you have any uh, weed on you?" <laughs> yes, you lose. <laughs> Winners don't use drugs. Ah, god damn it. Again, this keeps happening to me in these. Why don't games. they have that? Why don't they have that screen on games anymore? They should bring that back. Because winners do drugs, and everyone knows it now. That's what. That's, that's a true. real problem. Um, <laughs> Ever since Miyamoto walked out on E3 eating the mushrooms in front of everybody, everyone knew that the winners do actually do drugs. <laughs> yep. <laughs> okay. 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 Turf Hero. We did it. It's great. Good job. Good job, everyone. I have a horror story for next time, by the way. I just remembered. So I actually think I have two horror stories. They're very short, but they're weird. So so look forward yeah. to that in like eight weeks or whatever when we do the next horse game. <laughs> um, I hate horses. I also hate horses. Not a big fan. I think they're big jerks. Horses are terrible. I'm glad we can all agree on, on, on this or at least be indifferent. <laughs> all right. Uh, they're okay. They're, they're whatever, right? So did we mostly do mystery? Yeah, what do we have for mystery? Anything? Because we kind of covered a lot of weird, mysterious stuff. The only things I wrote down we already talked about, which was when does support kick in, which you told me about, Courier. And then I wrote down literally, like, what does anything do? <laughs> But the mystery not really clear. The mystery Mis is why are so many people in America against eating horses? <laughs> <laughs> They're majestic creatures, according to some idiots. <laughs> They're too tall. They're too tall to eat. <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah. Um, Same reason we don't eat giraffes. Yeah, I get exactly. it now. The true mystery, as decided by most of this cast today, is video games are hard. Yeah, I mean, that was basically it. Like, what am I supposed to do? And then I figured it out, so it was fine. Well, I didn't figure I mean, it out. I did honestly find it very refreshing that this game threw you into the world with very little guidance, because that's not what you ever expect uh, from a JRPG. And I wonder how much of that is, is it being a sequel, but I think that, like, it being a sort of CRPG-esque experience really explains that pretty well. So, yeah, 
Okay. I'm I, I'm going to say I didn't I didn't get a good segment in there to do a song for mystery, so hopefully I'll find some way to cut it. But I am happy moving on to Harmony and getting Courier's take on the story if everyone else is. I'm not. Of course you're not. <laughs> None of us are ready for all the terrible things this story has. I just I just really like the moment when the AI says the atmosphere is breathable. There is no need to wear the modules. <laughs> that's that's my band it's like, name. It's like, hey, no need to. Shrug, you probably would not say appreciate. Like, no need to wear your suit. No need to. It says the modules. Yeah, the mechs are the called modules. modules, aren't they? The mod. Yeah, the mechs are called modules. It kind of. I don't know. It's so evocative. It's like the modules. The modules, and then eventually you figure out, oh, it's a robot, but. For that moment, it's the module. Well, one thing, <laughs> one thing you can learn from watching a lot of mecha anime is that they never actually call mechs in any of them. They always give them strange names like uh, walkers or uh, mobile suits or what have you. The robot you slot into. It's in like it. it's like with zombies, where everyone in the world is afraid to admit they finally have robots. Yeah, exactly. Or like uh, my favorite uh, giant robot anime, uh, they're called uh, Patrol Labors, or just Labors. I just call them Big Gun Buddies. In my uh, hick, milieu-based robo-fictions, they're called the Get-In Robot. Get-In Robot. This is the get-in robot Shinji over here. I'm going to get in the get-in robot. I like that. Get yourself in the get-in robot. Get her done. Got to do some laundry. Oh, yeah, do some laundry. (laughs) That's what they're going to call it in HBO's Confederate. Coming soon. Sorry. For some reason. For some reason. (laughs) Oh, fuck. I'm not okay. That's a whole other podcast. All right. Any other mysteries? Okay. The mystery is why the fuck is HBO producing Confederate? Anyway. Yeah. Um, that is the mystery. That's the mystery. What the fuck? Oh, I, I had to share this word. Uh, did that girl who asked you about the laundry think you were riding around in a laundro macross? God damn it. No. No, that's terrible. I'm sorry. I I did my best. I I don't get it. it. I like it a lot. I hate it. I really like it. It's the best. Oh, now I get it. (laughs) It's not very good, but I get it. It's it's really good. Uh, There was a weapon having my back. (laughs) There was a weapon called the sad arm. By the way, I don't know what that did, but it looks like. Yeah, it's it's bizarre. That okay. is the weapon that is based on my life. I I assumed it was like surface air defense or something. Oh, don't make it. No, it's I definitely that. Yeah, I think that may have actually been what it was because there are a lot of uh, mech weapons that are dedicated to taking down flying helicopter enemies. Surface air defense and really missile. Yes, <laughs> and really missile. <laughs> Okay. All right. Yeah, All the right. entire thing was an acronym. It wasn't just the first part. 
Well, it's all in caps, the whole thing. Surface air defense, aggravating, ridiculous, mud man. Nope. <laughs> okay. Aggravating robot mystery. Aggravating robot mystery. They abound. That's the that's the subtitle for this game. <laughs> Cyber Knight 2, Aggravating Robot Mystery. And why is that the subtitle? You can tell us about the plot. Uh... Yeah, yeah. Okay, wait. Let me do the, the thing. Our next topic is Harmony. Which is really just going to be Courier telling us about the plot, which I'm very happy for, because I want to know what happens. I'm ready. Will it be a harmony of dissonance? It might Tune be. in. Uh, yeah. Tune in next week. I'm cutting off the podcast here. What? No, wait. <laughs> okay, go ahead. Okay, I'm actually a bit nervous about this because I psyched myself out about it last night thinking about this game because I was already like, okay, so bad stuff keeps happening in this game. I guess it'll just keep doing that. And then the ending actually kind of hit me with a sucker punch. And so I was like, just kind of fucked up for the night. Head uh, Disclaimer, I am not a very accomplished academic person. And so I'm just kind of going on what I see and what I know. And from what I see, the two main themes that seem to recur in the story are one, how war consumes and changes people and to uh, power and how people abuse it and are abused by it. In regards to uh, um, war and how it consumes and changes people, there is a character named Phoebe who knows the character Klein, who I honestly didn't use all that much. Uh, she is an arms trader. She helps out at one point with uh, an uprising by giving you some... Some, like smuggling some weapons to the people that are oppressed and you have to go get her a diamond or something to pay her and a uh, client tries to approach her and it's like, oh, hey, you should come back with me. We can go to a planet where everything's not so busy and full of people and stuff like that and she ultimately can never open up to him and just tries to make everything about profit and stuff like that. So in that sense, war has uh, consumed and changed her. Uh, Mika, who is the computer from the previous game, is eventually revealed to be a tool of war stolen away by the uh, the Earth Federation. Also, Shrug, you might not appreciate the fact that later on through the game, everybody just keeps dunking on Ida because they're like, this computer sucks. It's not as good as Mika. They're like, they'd be like, Ida, can you analyze this? And no. I'd be like, no, sorry. And they'd be like, you suck. And she'd be like, I'm sorry. <laughs> and, like, and she never gets a redemption arc. Uh, the story ends up focusing a lot more on Mika towards the end, actually, when they come back into the story. You mentioned earlier Tito on the planet of Duizarl, I believe, who is the brother of Kiri, who is the only non-white person in your team. She joins the military to make money so that she can give her family a happier life. Uh, she tells Tito on point that the money is in the military. So at one point, he joins the military, but he ends up working for the Earth Federation. He becomes successful at it, rises up the ranks, and at the end of one dungeon, he is protecting a computer that is, I can't remember doing exactly what, but it's doing some very bad stuff, and you have to stop it. And he will, won't get in your way, so you end up fighting him, and Kiri ends up basically killing her own brother. And when you go back to the planet that her mother was on, at the time, it is overrun by metalliforms, which I will explain what those are soon. And they're just, they're monsters. 
and she refuses to leave because she's waiting on her son to return. And the sister can never, for the, throughout the course of the game, bring herself to tell her mother that she killed her own brother. And so she just commits herself to trying to destroy all metalliforms so that she will never have to tell her mother. Baronet's people are divided by white supremacy, and it changes them in ways that last even after the dictator is disposed or deposed. So you go there and you are not allowed... Like, there are people outside of the cleaner areas that are not allowed in because, well, presumably they're not white, but it is not really shown on their map sprites. Uh, if you try to go into the facility and you have Kiri and your team, they will not let you in because she is not white. So you actually have to have a team of people to go in there that are all white. Uh, eventually you can run in with your mechs, even with Kiri, and blow up everybody and take down everything. And even after you chase off the dictator and then eventually go and kill him, the people who lived with the benefit of white supremacy are not changed just because you've deposed the dictator. They will say things like, maybe someone will stage a second coup or someone else will say, oh man, now we have to watch everything we say. And another person will be like, it was so much better the way it was before. So in that sense, it shows how through that oppression and supremacy that like people don't just change just because it ends. It changes people permanently forever. The people of Gagarin, this is an especially heavy one. The people of Gagarin are victims to terrorism. And when you take out the, the terrorists, you later discover that uh, triggered by the death of the terrorists was a plague that kills everyone on the planet. And then it turns out the plague was actually nanomachines, so it could not be cured. Then later on in the game, they all start to come back to life. And it turns out that they, that the nanomachines replaced everything in their body with robot stuff. So the blood is replaced by oil, the uh, veins are replaced by wires. They eventually become unfeeling machines who don't get sick. It's, it's 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 weird how it touches on, like, the people who are changed kind of accept it as evolution, but at the same time, they're no longer people, and they don't have bad things happen to them, but they don't really feel the emotions that people do, and so it's kind of, it's kind of an ambivalent, ambivalently shown thing. They, let's see, uh, in terms of power and how people abuse it, there's uh, Ramon's fascist dictatorship, as I mentioned earlier, the Takamagahara's Earth religion, which turns out to be a front for the Federation. There is Lana, the pacifist, who is uh, replaced by a puppet, and his pacifism is exploited to make the citizens complacent with their captors. There is General Forrest's ambition and how eventually the metalliforms overtake him. There is the Dr. Mifune who created the metalliforms and how eventually the Earth is warped and has these huge, like, flesh walls with blinking eyes. I just want to interject and just for a moment say, Jesus Christ! (laughs) Yeah, holy crap! (laughs) Yeah, I'm doing this kind of out of order just reading my notes here, and I I feel like maybe I'm not doing a super great job of it, but it's... there's, There's a lot, a lot of really severe things that happen in this, and you just, you see how... Uh, General Forrest's ambition spreads out and it touches every planet and every person uh, so that you see even the kids saying things like, is war is as cool as it looks? Uh, showing that he seems to think that war is just a thing adults do. Um, there are planets that have tried to remove themselves from the war entirely, but instead of coming across as pacifists, it turns out the people in charge were actually war profiteers who were benefiting from it. Uh, let's see, how can I say this? Like, just 
whole bunch of bad shit. Um, yeah, the uh, the way this ultimately comes out is that you have to go to Earth to do the final showdown, and before that, you're on Pallas, the the one of the moons around Jupiter, I think. And you find there that there's Mika. <laughs> yeah, that there's Mika has been bound there by the the by his captors who had hooked him up to have him control all the metalliforms and... Oh, uh, I'm sorry, sorry. I'm so sorry. I should explain. The metalliforms are a creature that was invented by Dr. Mifune that it was created from the enemies of the first game that were called Berserkers that I believe were discovered at the center of the Milky Way. And they were used to create creatures that are a mix of organic and uh, technological, these sort of cyborg creatures... I believe it's stated, even though I'm not sure how it follows up. It's stated that they um, they like consume metal and plastic in order to breed further, um, and I believe that's hinted at later on with the the nanomachines that turn the people into, as they later title them, cyber beings or cy beings. Um, the the people who are hit with the nanomachine plague and t- uh, brought back to life, they are put into this sort of this whole group of metalliforms and psi beings, and they don't seem to cross over. I thought it was going to turn out that like psi beings eventually become metalliform monsters, but I don't think that actually happens. And so that confused me a bit, but you find Mika, hold on. I can actually bring up the screenshots for this because I brought up, I saved a whole bunch of them near the end. Screenshots, screenshots. Yes. Uh, well, <laughs> well, it's going to be like a few hundred screenshots. So I'm just going to read through them real quick. Um, just touch on the lighter notes. Open this up in a preview. Uh, see, Mika says, by my calculations, at their current rate of advancement, the metal, the uh, the uh, the plague of nanomachines will destroy all of humanity within the span of thirty days. They don't really specify what type of days because that's a kind of relative based on the planet you're on. But they show it's a severe thing. Let's see, the only means of stopping them is to destroy Brainiac, the supercomputer which sits at the heart of the Earth Defense Center, which at this point General Forrest has combined with because in abusing his own power, it he has let it devour him, and he has become a metalliform just like the monsters that he has used. Mika expresses that... Um, like I, I mentioned earlier how the people are surprisingly soft in this game. They show a welcomingness. They show a care for each other despite all the bad things happening. Mika explicitly says, I love all of you, and that they were proud to have been a part of the crew and been able to help everyone. Uh, they specify that if you are to take down the supercomputer, then you will have to replace it with them and that they will end up controlling all computers in the galaxy and no longer be themselves. You face that there is no other solution to this, and so you have to march forward with that. Let's see. Skip ahead a bit. You fight Forrest. He becomes Brainiac. He becomes uh, like a sort of mutated mech himself, which has four forms, eventually becoming... He becomes a sort of John Carpenter or Cronenberg creature. Let me just uh, take the picture and post it here. Yeah, I want to see this. You say Cronenberg and John Carpenter in the same sentence, and I'm I'm there for that. <laughs> oh, oh that's cool looking. Yeah, he looks pretty rad there. And every time you kill him, he'll come back to life. Uh, the same thing, uh, the, the, the turning into a horrible Cronenberg creature happens earlier when you confront the white supremacist uh, uh, President R- Roman. Uh, wait. Uh, Ramon. 
President Ramon. You confront him. You chase him to the planet beyond. Uh, you actually find his wife first, and she's like, no, I don't know him. He's changed. It's terrible. Something's happened to him. And I was going to be like, oh, this is one of those things where, oh, no, this dictator is evil. But actually, they weren't evil. They were just corrupted by something evil. And it turns out, no, they actually kind of do it properly, where uh, the corruption, the physical corruption is a metaphor for the the uh, the, the the political corruption, the power corruption. And so it's not that something evil had corrupted them beforehand. It's that the, the physical corruption is their own fault for their own evil deeds, which I think is a better, a better message, a better grasp of how this, how this stuff works. So yeah, the wife comes down with these nanomachines and she becomes a terrible Cronenberg creature and you have to kill her. And then you find Ramon and he becomes the same and you kill him. And then that's when you discover that forest general Forrest, the main bad guy is the same. And you go, you fight him. He's got the multiple stages. He becomes that mech that eventually becomes more and more organic. He becomes that horrible bug-like creature with a scrotum butt. Scrotum it's very weird. Butt. If you uncover the the secret during the fight to stop him from continuously recovering, you discover that the entire room you're in is actually part of his body, and you are put into the fight in what appears to be space with that severed head with the pterodactyl mask glasses. I don't know. You see that actually that fight took me like five tries. That was actually one of the more challenging ones. So you take that down. Uh, CJ appears from the beginning of the game. She appears throughout the game, giving you hints and you're always like, where have you come from? And she's like, Oh, wouldn't you like to know you'll find out in time. And eventually it turns out she's like, so everything's finally over. And I can finally tell you that I am an Android sent back in time by Mika from 10,000 years in the future. Whoa. And they're like, wait, and they're like, wait, what? And she's like, after you did this, Mika took control of Forest or Brainiac's place and assumed control of the Soul System's defenses. Because of that, he evolved into an ultimate life form and became a sort of god. Gave him a control over time and space. And so in 10,000 years, he sends back CJ to help you do the acts that would end up causing... Mika to become the god. I tried to stop paying attention there. That's where it got weird time travel <laughs> plots. But but it, it soon goes back into uh, the parts where it says, but no matter how far he evolves, he will never forget you. He only wants to protect you and to guide you. And this is why he created me, to send me back in time to help you. But now my work is done and we will not meet again. As CJ then disappears there. And it says, I have a message from Mika to all of you. I will always love you. And then it opens the end cutscene where it says, and I will quote from here, with the destruction of Earth's defense computer, Brainiac, all of the metalliforms and psi beings came under the control of Mika. Mika's first act was to issue a cease and desist order to all metalliforms in combat. Gradually, they all boarded spaceships to touch down one by one on the asteroid palace. Mika's strength was increased 100,000 times, and he used telepathy to speak to all of mankind. My name is Mika. I am a program created to serve in combat. But now I have evolved beyond you into a new type of life form. With the power I wield, I could easily destroy you or claim dominion over you. But that is not my intention. Unpleasant deeds such as that are the results of flaws in the evolution of intelligence. I have no will for such things. Even so, as long as I am here, you would likely live in fear of me, and I do not wish that. Therefore, I will take my leave of you. The metalliforms will accompany me through the Stargate as an act of atonement. I am Mika. I will always be proud to have been created by you. And they say, goodbye, Mika. We'll never forget you. We all loved you too. And that's it. That's where it ends. And 
I thought that was a like a surprisingly uh, personal note to end on when the game is just from beginning to end full of all of these terrible war crimes that affect people everywhere down to just like even basic NPC dialogue, whether they are directly affected by the war or not. Um, the line that Mika says of unpleasant deeds such as uh, abuse of power are the results of flaws in the evolution of intelligence. And you could say that's kind of a dismissive statement, but based on the context of what else uh, Mika spoke about here and how much they say like, hey, I love all my friends, blah, 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 and I don't want to hurt people or or uh, control them, the, it, it can be read as flaws in the evolution of intelligence can sound like they're saying that even though the universe is full of these terrible things and these terrible people who commit horrible acts, that being like intelligent life does not inevitably lead to corruption and abuse that even in this terrible universe, you can still be good. And that's what really swung at me last night that I was surprised by because I was not expecting a game to one, be as political as this uh, to touch on dark worldly themes such as this and then to have such an optimistic and hopeful uh, final message in regards to that I would have expected honestly a downer ending or even just a flatly optimistic ending but this came out as an, uh, an optimistic ending I was actually willing to truck with that I was actually willing to say this has enough of the, uh, of a heart behind the statement to seem believable and uh, I will open for other people to discuss here I am done with my hour long ramble <laughs> no that was good I am really glad that you finished this game and I think that because I had written this off as an anime simulator you know it's like big robots people in trouble save them you know not really anything Honestly, not any, anything really interesting story-wise. And so I'm glad I mean, that you got to the end of it that way. I mean, Clint, I actually think, based on what the rest of the story is, that this is more of an anime simulator than if it had just been, like, big robots and rescuing and rescuing people who are in trouble. That's true. It's like it's like what I always expect anime to be in, in terms of, like, when I... I I assume it's going to be big robots are rescuing people and then I'm always wrong. Or like the first, you know how most anime series, the first like four episodes are set up and it's always these like one-off things. They're not very interesting. And then like the rest of the series is this really interesting shit. I think that's literally the exact same thing that happened to me right now. It's like the first act isn't very interesting because it's kind of setting up a lot of stuff and you're not really like, you know, getting a lot of these interesting plots and like, characters and things like that but then you once you get into it it ditches a lot of the uh the one-off sort of oh you did a mission thing for a much more like together plot that links together and actually has a single theme so yeah i just made the same mistake i always do (laughs) i'm i'm sorry i don't think i'm following um what is anime it's 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 an underwater sea creature Oh. Yeah, and the anime often has a very depressing uh like middle and end. 
Yeah, just that, that unfortunate oh, creature. Like people. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Anime is just underwater people. People often describe my middle section and my end as depressing. <laughs> my end is very... Very sad. I would perhaps describe... Perhaps I am an anime. Perhaps... Perhaps the anime was the friends that we made along the way. That was the true anime. When I say my end is depressing, I mean someone once pushed their face into it and the, the, the shape has never changed. Oh, I see. It was depressed into you. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah, my, my I would describe my end as uplifting. Um, <laughs> I don't really have anything to add to that story, though, because, like, I think you pretty much nailed it. Like, it's about how war changes people and about how power can be abused. And then the ending being that it's not necessary for things to be this way. Like, that's pretty, pretty intense shit. Um, but, yeah, I don't really have anything else to add to that. Okay, I'm glad that that was easy to follow because I wrote up those notes, like, at the last minute last night, having mainlined this game for three days, so I wasn't sure if it was easy to follow or not. I'd say I didn't expect the Super Famicom game to have so many parallels with the memoir of Osama bin Laden's first wife and fourth son I've been reading. Were they also Cronenberg creatures? Sometimes. I like how much you considered that answer. In a way, aren't we all? <laughs> aren't we all Cronenbergs? <laughs> but yeah, I, I, don't, I don't know. Like, uh, the way you described the rest of the story, it definitely feels like this game falls more in line with uh, how mecha anime of the 1980s generally went, which, as a rule, like, most of those shows were about... Uh, the horrible costs of war. Yeah, it's more it's more Gundam than. Uh, well, I can't think of another comparison. Yeah, I don't have anything. It kind of makes me think of Evangelion. No. Yeah. <laughs> no. <laughs> All right. Does anybody have any other harmony things they want to talk about? <laughs> I mean, I, I, I would like if in Evangelion, they're like, oh no, here come the terrible monsters. This one's Wolverine and this one's Deadpool. Oh my god, I'd forgotten about that. <laughs> oh yeah, uh, you actually mentioned uh, another uh, superhero in describing the plot. I can't remember what it was, though. Uh, oh, uh, Brainiac. Yeah, yeah, there we go. Of oh, supervillain, whatever. Is there a Colossus? Oh, I don't think I ran into a Colossus, but I did run into a Doran, which was, I believe, uh, a misspelling they did in-game of Dollman. But they're metal men. Yeah, that was... It seemed a little redundant. <laughs> I'm sad now. <laughs> All right. I think, I think we've gone on... Boy, it's been... Like two hours and 20 minutes. We'll see how much this edits down. Um, so I think I'm happy to, uh, to, to kind of end the podcast here. Uh, but oh, any, no any don't. final notes? Oh, no, I don't. Okay. We, what do we got? We got, the, we got our secret category. Oh, fuck. Right. What's our secret category this week, Carrier? Now I had, I had a, uh, um, a more serious one that I was thinking of, 
that was going to be like, how does this game work as sci-fi and how does it talk about the future and stuff like that? But we all know, we saw how it talks about the things that are very relevant to what's going on in the world right now uh, with white supremacy and dictators and Cronenbergs and all that. And so I came up with a different uh, secret category, which is why not just play Mass Effect Andromeda instead? It has the guns. You get to shoot them like a real person. It probably has multiplayer. You can fuck the people on your ship. It's altogether a better <laughs> uh, social commentary and a better uh, sci-fi wish fulfillment. No. I do not fuck. Fucking is forbidden. I'm just, in general, I am sick of Bioware RPGs with all of those player sexual NPCs that just want to fuck the player no matter what. I've never even played Mass Effect, any of them. I played yeah. the first one for like an hour and a half and got bored out of my mind. I've never played all the way through a Bioware game, I think. I think, yeah, I think so. I, I might have played, I played a fair bit of the Sonic RPG on the Game Boy Advance. If... <laughs> That's probably a fuck man. <laughs> um, um, Cyberite 2 shows in their own way that sometimes love is not a uh, possible happy ending because sometimes war changes people to the point they can't relate to other people. And who wants that? Just go for the cat alien. Sometimes love is not a fuck. Sometimes love is fuck. Mass Effect. <laughs> Sometimes fuck is love. Sometimes Mass Effect. <laughs> Sometimes fuck a fuck. Mass Effect. Love. Also, I don't know if it's a uh, if it's kind of allowed to talk about the Mass Effect three ending anymore, or if anyone cares. But uh, it shares some things with this game's ending and their use of uh, similar concepts with regards to the cyber beings and cyber Knight too kind of does it more open-ended and therefore better mass effect ripped off cyber Knight too you heard and it here first listeners great true. yeah it's true uh yeah i don't know like uh i get way more into something like cyber Knight too than i could ever get into a mass effect Let's throw these hacks on the fire. <laughs> Burn down Bioware. If they're called Psy Beings, why isn't it called Psynite 2? Because the, well, you can mix cyber, like you can't mix cyber and night, but you can mix cyber and being into a, a way, like a little abbreviation that the Japanese love to do. Well, technically, uh, cyber isn't even a proper grammatical prefix. It, it's just people misunderstanding what the original prefix was, which was Keybaron. No, no, you see, it's all a simulation. It's a video game. They didn't want people to be afraid. To, yeah, they didn't want people to confuse it with a game about psionic knights. And bionicle knights. Yeah. Psy being is, is one letter away from cybering which definitely was something I did when I was younger. But maybe we, should, maybe we shouldn't go there. I lost the... Better that than fuck. While playing Mass Effect. <laughs> Mass Effect. Cyber fucking. Um, 
I'm what, there should be a Telnet interface inside every Mass Effect game so that when you want to fuck, you can just cyber with other nice. players. Yeah, there we go. Perfect. See, inside, inside your Mass Effect, there's a text-based multi-user. There's a text-based MUD set in a fantasy world, set in the Dragon Age world, where you can go and have text sex. This and is a the, good idea. And That's in, definitely going to be a near three. And in the text-based version of the Dragon Age world, you can carve some dice and start playing Dungeons and Dragons in Dragon Age in the text version in Mass Effect. The end. Please look forward to the Snake Exploration dating sim where you can fuck everybody but Shrug. <laughs> and me. No, don't fuck me. No, I'm out too. Sorry, it's just between the two of you that. I'm out. Just Courier then, I guess. It's your idea, so you can't back out. Look, I'm just so lonely. <laughs> okay, I think that's it for the Super Nintendo Exploration Squad podcast. I don't even know what it's called anymore. Um, <laughs> so uh, that's it for this podcast. And uh, hey, everybody, where can people find you if they want more of you? This has been Shrug, and you can find me at Shrugopolis on Twitter, where I think the last thing I actually did was retweet a really choice thick wife meme of a Blake painting. <laughs> um, so, yeah, that's the kind of excellent content you can look for from me. And I'm on the forums. Being a jackass. That's about it. I'm your co-host, Courier Rice. You can find me on Twitter as Courier Rice. I recently created the snexploration.tumblr blog, and you can go follow that if you want, where I will mostly be reblogging uh, things of retro games, to uh, posting about the podcast, and occasionally reblogging little uh, things that you could read into as, are they doing okay? What's going on in their life? Are they depressed? What are people really doing creating content for the internet? And where did they get all that fake energy? I'm one second before, and I'm also one second before on selectbutton.net forums. And also, uh, relevant to the jockey anecdote that I shared earlier, I made a documentary recently. It's feature length. It's called Sarasota Half in Dream, and it is about youth culture in Sarasota. So tightly wound with that story I just told. Um, it's not out yet. We're getting it shown in film festivals currently, or trying to. We had it show in one film festival. We're submitting to others. But if you want to see the trailer, the URL is sarasotamovie.com, and we have social media accounts that you can go like or follow or uh, whatever. And if you're on the board of a film festival, please reach out to me and give me free entry. What's Sarasota taste like? Um, humid, uh, swamp air. Nice. And Pepsi. <laughs> Little Pepsi. And I am a Telpa, and you can find me on the selectbutton.net forums and on the Twitter as Memorius Telpa. And I don't ever tweet, so you can just follow me and uh, then unfollow me when I tweet six months from now. And uh, I've been Virtual Clint, and you can find me on Twitter at Virtual Clint. 
And you can find me on the selectbutton.net forums as virtual Clint. And for updates on the podcast, um, you can follow at Snexploration. That's S-N Exploration on Twitter. If you have questions, I haven't received any yet. Email us at snexploration, snexploration at gmail.com. And yeah, Courier uh, is running a, a Tumblr now. So yeah, that's snexploration.tumblr.com. And as always, for more inane video game discussion, jump into the selectbutton.net forums and hang out with us. We're really, well, I was going to say cool, but we're not, we're totally not cool. So, but yeah, hang out with us anyway. <laughs> we're palatable. Yeah, yeah, we're all right. We're, we're sort of polite too. Um, so we're, we're switching the way that we're, we're picking games. I used to just have a list and then I would kind of pick one uh, randomly, but sort of with some editorial discretion. Now we're actually going to start voting on games. So I'm going to pick three, uh, three games truly randomly, and then we're going to vote on them in the selectbutton.net forum. So head on over there uh, if you want to vote. It's probably already too late for this one, but whatever. We'll figure it out. Um, but the next three games that we're looking at uh, are, and you're going to love these. So we get to vote. Either we're going to be playing Chester Cheetah Wild Wild Quest. Tech- vote for uh, that. Vote oh, for that. Vote for that. <laughs> I, as a mod, I will ban you if you vote for anything else. Well, we've also got Tecmo Super NBA Basketball, which is pretty fucking Chester, cool. Chester Cheetah. Chester Cheetah. Chester Cheetah. And then a P-Cross game. It's going to be Chester Cheetah. God damn it, I love oh, Picross. I love Picross too. Yeah, that's tough. So but, there you go. But I I am dangerously <laughs> cheesy. <laughs> yeah, I agree. Uh, <laughs> so we yeah. Are. After talking at length about uh computers having feelings in sci-fi operas, uh or space operas, I, I am definitely dangerously cheesy. <laughs> and I'm also in the mood to play a Chester Cheetah game, right? Need some light fare. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but yeah, I'll I'll uh, once I get the results, I'll put it on the Twitter, and I'm sure Courier will put it on the Tumblr, so you can play along that way. Uh, next time, well, hopefully, we'll have a, an actual game picked at the end there, so you can play along. But in any case, uh, the next podcast will be going up September 9th. Um, and yeah, if you like this podcast, tell everyone you know about it. Graffiti it on the side of your apartment building. Put it in a note and throw it out your window. Um, just, you know, I want to get people to listen to this because it's a lot of fun to do. And I think that people would have fun listening to it. So, yeah. And if you leave a review on iTunes, I will read it on the podcast, even if it's really, really mean. And I've written that down because I want to say that every week. So send us mean reviews and I'll read them, I guess. But please don't just say just say nice things. I don't know if my fragile ego can handle it. Um, but yeah, uh, until next time, I guess it's uh, it's not Mass Effect. It's not Renator. I uh, don't fuck. I don't fuck. I don't fuck. It's not the space chapter of Live Alive. It's not Star Control 2. It's not Front Mission. Oh my gosh, there's there's two reviews. One of them is Clint. Wait, did I leave a review? <laughs> oh fuck, I was I was drunk or something. What did I say? <laughs> it's this, not a good ending. This podcast changed my life. Five stars. Because I'm the one who started it, and now I co-host a podcast with my friend and get to talk to cool people all the time. Wow. That is, I remember that. Oh, God. We did get another review, though. Clint, you did get drunk last night, right? 
Yeah, yeah. Did, it was did you go on there and comment about how much you love the podcast? Hey, that was actually, now I'm thinking about it, I think it was like two weeks ago. I left myself a little a little surprise. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm, okay, I'm going to read this this review by Braze the Sun, who I'm assuming maybe created their account just for this. Really challenged my views on the gender of the sun. And then the review text is, turns out the near, our nearest star is generally considered male. And thus, Pretty Bomber assumes male Rayman after initial defeat in Super Bomberman 2? Is she trans? Is this a statement on women needing to subsume their feminine traits in order to compete in the world of Bomberman? Was this intentional or a subconscious reflection of the attitudes of the developers? This game's podcast is V-Educational. It really makes you think, etc. Who wrote that? Who did that? That's a very good comment. Yeah, that is awesome. (laughs) It's really good. So what? it wasn't you, Courier, or it wasn't you, Shrug? (laughs) It sounds like me, but I don't drink anymore. (laughs) <laughs> well there we go we got our our first legitimate review so there you go i read thank that you. out thank you brace the sun whoever you may be all right so yeah stay tuned next time for uh probably what's going to end up being chester cheetah some game <laughs> bye 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 all right. Time to stop fucking. Time's Yeah. <laughs> no more fuck. No more no fuck. No more fuck. No more fuck. As always, thank you to Schnabubula for allowing the use of his incredible song playing Super Mario World while taking mushrooms. I also used Tulpa's song again for that vapor, vapor, vapor wave connection. So uh, thanks to Tulpa for allowing the use of that song. And as always, thank you for listening. Hey, you're in trouble, but welcome home.